Chapter 3 of Romancing the Tomb, a Good Omens fan fiction, written by Auntie Kate, read aloud by Sky Asimaru. If you enjoy this podfic, you can check out the original story on Archive of Our Own. If you would like to hear more of my recordings or see some of my own work, you can find me through the pen and screen name of Sky Asimaru. Romancing the Tomb, Chapter 3 The Book of Angels They walked onwards, ever onwards, and Aziraphale tried not to watch Crowley. It was impossible. He had to look at something, and the scenery was very nice, but it was growing a little repetitive. So the main thing he saw, usually slightly ahead of him, was those long legs, those angular shoulders, long arms, rust-red hair yanked back from that annoyingly long neck, and pulled messily into a ponytail. He sternly reminded himself that Anathema was in danger, and he was too. He was also starving, and the protein bar had done nothing to help in that regard. He wasn't going to complain, though, not even about the blisters or the ache in his arms from lugging his suitcase, or the pinch of hunger in his belly. Crowley had, after looking at a map he'd produced from somewhere, led them off the road and along a trail that wound roughly along the same route. Should we stay on the road and try to flag down a car? Aziraphale had asked. And risk running into that wankstein with a gun again? Crowley had muttered. Aziraphale was forced to concede that was the sensible course of action. "'I'm sorry,' he said, out of habit. "'This is all very new to me. I don't mix with the criminal element, as a general rule.' Crowley had shot him a look he hadn't been able to decipher, but he'd felt rebuked by it anyway. Crowley hadn't really spoken since then, and he seemed quite content to walk ahead of him in silence only glancing back occasionally. He was inscrutable behind his dark sunglasses. Sometimes he'd end up quite far ahead, but he'd usually stop before too long and wait for Aziraphale to catch up. It wasn't as if Aziraphale wasn't well acquainted with certain sorts of misery, but this sort of misery was entirely new. Hiking multiple kilometers across fields of heather in his formerly best pair of brogues, while trying very hard not to think about how he'd woken up this morning, and he was still dragging his suitcase, which had earned him another scornful look from Crowley. Of course, he was also deeply worried about Anathema, and after the encounter with the pale man in the trench coat, he was truly afraid for his life. The worst part was that he'd dragged another human into his mess. Crowley didn't deserve it, even if he was the grumpiest person Aziraphale had ever met. Who could blame him, really, for being grumpy under the circumstances? Although it might be nice if he toned it down just a shade. It wasn't as if Aziraphale had done any of this on purpose, but he was also accidentally charming, every so often, and so much more good-looking than he had any right to be. At least, Aziraphale told himself, it wasn't raining anymore. 
The sun came and went as clouds scudded past, and the wind was somewhere between freezing and polar vortex, but he was dry. He checked his pocket watch, somehow still working, despite the soaking it had received yesterday. It was past 1 p.m., but he didn't bother asking how far they'd come, or how far they had yet to go. Crowley must have seen him fiddling with his watch, because he stopped abruptly. Another protein bar? he asked, shedding his backpack gracefully. Aziraphale was determined not to complain, but that didn't mean he wasn't also going to take a rest when it was offered. He set the blasted suitcase down, and let himself drop onto it weakly. No, thank you, he said. I think when we get to the village I'm going to find the greasiest café I can, and simply inhale a bowl of chips. Crowley handed him a water bottle, and Aziraphale drank from it gratefully. There's quite a nice pub in Cragmire, and they do a stew and Kilkenny thing. It's good. You should have that. A what? Crowley gave him an almost smile a slight twitch of his mouth that made Aziraphale wonder what his actual, genuine laugh might be like. It's like Kokanen, or, you know, bubble and squeak, cabbage and tatties. The way he said tatties was quite possibly the most endearing thing Aziraphale had heard from his mouth, and he found himself trying not to smile at him. Crowley didn't have much of a Scottish accent, just a slight softening around the edges a curl around the R sounds, but he couldn't place where else he was from. It was the accent of someone who worked hard to fit in wherever he was, generic, almost, forgettable. Sounds delightful, Aziraphale said. I am terribly hungry. I could eat a horse and chase the jockey. If you've got that much energy, we'd better get on. Crowley stretched his arms over his head, revealing an expanse of his midsection between his t-shirt and those snug black jeans, a trail of hair above his belt buckle, several shades more orange than the auburn of his head. Oh, good. Now Aziraphale was thinking about following the line down beneath the waistband of his jeans. He imagined running his finger down beneath the fly of his jeans before he managed to avert his eyes to a nearby mountain while chiding himself, again. This wasn't some holiday, some romp in a meadow, some ridiculous scene from one of his books. It was serious, and he shouldn't be distracting himself like this, even if he wanted to push Crowley down into the heather and rip his trousers off. They made their way onwards down the trail, for what felt like another thousand hours. What do you write, then? Crowley said, out of nowhere. Ah, Aziraphale always hated that question. Novels. I'm working on my fifteenth. He hoped that would be enough information, and Crowley wouldn't ask for more details. He wasn't ashamed. He wasn't. It was just that he knew all too well what would happen to Crowley's face when he explained it. I write gay romance novels, he'd say and Crowley would raise one of those elegant eyebrows in badly concealed derision. He knew from experience that his work, and damn it, it was work, he labored over his books, 
was seen as rather declassé, as tacky and tawdry and silly, pornography for middle-aged women, one reviewer had called it, which Aziraphale had rather resented, because it wasn't as if his stories didn't have plots and emotions and characters. And yes, sex. But it was as if writing about love, in all its manifestations, wasn't a skill like any other. You should try writing that many love scenes, and making each one different and interesting and actually provocative, he chided his mental picture of Crowley. Even his fantasy version of Crowley didn't seem to like him very much, and that was also understandable, because Aziraphale didn't like himself very much right now either. He felt utterly ridiculous in his leather-soled shoes and waistcoat, marching about the countryside like a fool because he'd been too idiotic to remember a phone charger. Of course, Crowley had apparently decided it was the perfect time to be chatty, right when Aziraphale's feet felt as if they were going to drop off and take what was left of his self-esteem with them. "'What sort of novels?' he said over his shoulder. "'Ah, well, all sorts, really. The one I'm writing is actually a western.' "'With cowboys? And horses? And gunfights?' Crowley shot him another dubious look over his shoulder, as if to say, doesn't seem like your style. Indeed, Aziraphale shifted the weight of his suitcase. He was this close to throwing it down the hill, littering laws be damned. And you make money doing that, then? It's a living, Aziraphale replied airily. Look, is that a house? And... Thank whatever deity was watching out for Aziraphale. It was. A cottage, small and rather dreary, a plume of smoke rising from the chimney. Aziraphale immediately began praying to that same deity for a cup of tea. A woman with shockingly bright crimson hair opened the door, almost before Crowley had his hand up to knock. Look at you two drowned rats, she said cheerfully. Yeah, look, we had a bit of a car accident, Crowley began, and she gave a little gasp. Oh, no! Come in, come in, you poor dears! She threw the door open wide and waved them inside. Crowley made an odd hissing noise as they tromped into the cottage, and a moment later, Aziraphale saw why. The entire place looked as though there'd been an invasion of feral teddy bears. Every surface was covered by a bear, or bear-related item. Decorative plates, posters, needlepoints, cushions, a large velvet Elvis painting, except Elvis was a teddy bear. It was also warm, and there was a sofa, and the woman was practically a psychic, because a moment later he had a cup of tea in his hands, and found himself pushed into a softness of teddy bear-themed cushions. Listen, can we... Crowley said, but the woman bustled out and then came back a moment later with a packet of hobnobs. Now, how can I help? She handed the packet to Aziraphale, who took four without any regret whatsoever. Can I use your phone? Crowley said, waving away the biscuits. Oh, sorry, love, the woman smiled. 
We don't have one. My Shadwell doesn't believe in them. Says the government can listen in. Aziraphale and Crowley looked at each other. Is there any way we could trouble you for some sort of transportation? Aziraphale said, carefully. As we said, we've had a little crash, and we really need to get to Cragmere as soon as possible. The woman was staring at him, quite intently, and suddenly her whole face lit up. <gasps> it's you! You're Aziraphale Wilder! Yes, Aziraphale said, but she'd already leapt up again and dashed out of the room. You've got a fan, Crowley said dryly. There were indistinct noises from another room, and then a moment later, the woman reappeared with a stack of books, Aziraphale's books, all fourteen of them, in a towering pile of paperbacks. I can't believe it, she chatted happily. You're in my house! I had a premonition this morning. Marjorie, I said to myself when I woke up, today is going to be an unusual day, and I was right. She put the stack of books on the coffee table in front of them. I have all of them, except your new one, the one you're writing now. I can't wait for it. I just love your books so much. I can't even tell you what they've meant to me. I know it's a terrible imposition, but could you please sign them for me? Aziraphale stared at the stack, and he could see that Crowley was looking at them too. The covers, more pecks than a calendar full of firemen, Anathema had once said. The titles, the readers like to know what they're getting, he'd replied. His name. Why on earth hadn't he written under a pseudonym? The Angel's Heart. Paradise Bound. Taste of Heaven. The Chains of Love, etc., etc. As Marjorie continued speaking, Crowley reached out and picked up one of the books and turned it over. Aziraphale was not ashamed, except now, of course, he desperately was, and wanted to hide his face in one of the teddy bears beside him on the sofa. Crowley's face was studiously blank, in the manner of someone trying very hard not to smile, the faintest twist to the corner of his mouth. Aziraphale had thought, only yesterday, he might die of shame, but now it seemed that he was doomed to live through all manner of exciting new ignominies. It's just, you're my favorite novelist of all time, and you're in my house. It's such an honor, Marjorie was saying as Aziraphale came back into his body. That's very, very kind, Aziraphale forced himself to smile at her. She didn't seem to notice it was nearer a grimace. And I didn't know you had a boyfriend, she beamed at them both. At least that wiped the smug look from Crowley's face. Uh, no, 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 we're not, he said, with only a hint of desperation. Just acquaintances, Aziraphale said firmly, wishing that Crowley's discomfort with the idea that someone might mistake them for a couple wasn't quite so obvious. Of course, someone like Crowley, someone tall and angular and good-looking and stylish, and nice-smelling and oddly charming in an irascible way, wouldn't be interested in him. 
Marjorie gave them what he could only describe as a twinkle. Well, you never know where love will blossom, do you? Absolutely nothing is blossoming, Aziraphale said, as firmly as he could manage without being rude. Please, Marjorie, I am more than happy to sign these books for you, but the thing is, we're in a bit of a pickle, and we rather need some way to get to town. It is quite urgent for both of us. What do you suggest? Well, I'd drive you, but Shadwell has the little mule, she said cryptically then laughed at the look on his face. <laughs> That's my car, silly. Anyway, he's over at Jock's house, and they have their little meeting. They like to talk about their little conspiracies, you know, and then he always drinks too much whiskey and stays the night. Gives me a chance to catch up on my stories. At that, she patted the stack of books. So he won't be back till the morning, I'm afraid. Crowley made an incoherent sound and rubbed at his face. And, Aziraphale continued, doggedly, even though his feet were killing him and he really didn't want to leave the warmth of the bare-encrusted sofa. How far would it be to walk to the next farmhouse? Oh, about five miles, love. You won't get there before dark, Marjorie said. Outside, the sun was already low in the sky and Aziraphale suspected he probably wouldn't get there at all. You'd be welcome to stay the night, and then we can drive you to town in the morning. Aziraphale looked at Crowley, and Crowley glanced at him in return. You're the one with the deadline, Crowley said in a resigned way. That sounds just lovely, Aziraphale said. He tried not to let his voice wobble and he tried not to feel as though he'd betrayed Anathema again. I'm sure you don't mind sharing, do you? Marjorie said as she wrangled the ancient fold-out sofa in her spare room into position. It was narrower than a double bed and sagged in the middle, but it was slightly better than a narrow strip of foam and a sleeping bag. Of course not. Aziraphale said weakly, and Crowley pulled a face that suggested he really did mind, but wasn't going to argue. Marjorie had fed them baked beans on toast, and sherry and bovril, and Aziraphale had consumed both with the appetite of a man who'd eaten nothing more than protein bars and Maltesers in the last day. She'd also carried on quite the conversation through dinner, peppering Aziraphale with questions about his new book. He'd laid out the whole plot for her, feeling his neck burning as Crowley had sat and listened with that smug, almost smile. Despite that, he'd answered her every question about where his inspiration came from, his research methods, if he'd ever thought about a film adaptation of one of his books, her own fantasy casting for said cinematic masterpiece and so on. Eventually, she'd stopped talking and looked at their faces, and then bustled them down a narrow hallway to this small back room. Bathroom's this way, love, Marjorie said after she'd spread out the sheets, and Crowley followed without comment. He returned later with wet hair and smelling faintly of shampoo, like flowers or fake apples, dressed in a faded old t-shirt 
and worn tracksuit bottoms and fell face first onto the bed dramatically. <sighs> Hot water's on the way out, he said into the pillow. At least, as Zarephel thought, as he stood in the tiny bathroom a few minutes later, he could have a shower and put on clean pajamas and brush his teeth. Even if the water pressure was terrible and the temperature lukewarm at best, he stood under the weak, tepid shower and tried not to think about the fact that he only had three days left to deliver the package. It was all going to be fine. When the water became truly cold, he climbed out of the tub and dried himself with a small and very scratchy towel. He longed for his own home and his sister and a very large glass of wine. Back in Marjorie's small back room, Crowley had already climbed into the sofa bed and was reading by the light of a small faux Tiffany lamp. He had a book tucked up against his knees and didn't look up when Aziraphale came in. And then Aziraphale saw what he was reading. It was his third book, His Devilish Desires. He'd been proud of it when he'd first written it, but now he wished he'd never written a word in his life. Crowley, he said. Shh, Crowley held up a hand. I'm just getting to a good bit. He made a show of licking his finger and turning a page. Put that away, Aziraphale said. Please, you don't need to read it. Crowley glanced up at him. But I'm enjoying it, he said, utterly straight-faced. You are not. I am. The stable hand just met the duke, and they're making eyes at each other over a horse's bum. Thrilling stuff. Please, Crowley, it's bad enough that I've ruined your car and had to spend not one but two nights sleeping in extremely close quarters with you, and now you're going to make fun of me. Aziraphale tried very hard not to sound like an overgrown child and failed. Crowley looked at him coolly. First off, I'm not making fun of you. Secondly, why would you write a book if you didn't want anyone to read it? I do want people to read it, just not you. Why not me? I'm enjoying it. It's very descriptive. I never realized you could spend a whole page on one blowjob. Aziraphale pressed his eyes together shut as tightly as he could and tried not to consider Crowley and anything at all connected to blowjobs. This couldn't go on. He'd just take the book away, so he lunged across the bed to grab it. But Crowley twisted it away and held it above his head, and somehow Aziraphale ended up sprawled, almost in his lap. Give it to me! Now! Aziraphale reached for it again, and instead found himself shoved so hard he toppled off the bed grabbing at Crowley as he went. It didn't arrest his fall. Instead, to his horror, Crowley landed on top of him. <laughs> you mad bastard, Crowley said, but he was laughing, actually laughing, in a way that lit up his whole face, but he still had the book clutched to his chest. Please, it's bad enough that you're... Aziraphale's treacherous brain supplied several adjectives, most of them synonyms for gorgeous. You're sitting on me! Crowley laughed again, 
and it made Aziraphale feel overheated and strange. Ha ha ha! You started it! I was just trying to read a very exciting book! Please, please get off me, Aziraphale said, because Crowley's weight and the way it was pressing into him was deeply unsettling. He was far too close, still damp hair framing his angular face, his eyes a lovely, light, honey color, a shade or two darker than amber, but not quite chestnut. This close, Aziraphale could see each of his ridiculously long eyelashes, could have counted the freckles scattered across the bridge of his nose and sharp cheekbones, could have lifted his head slightly and nipped at Crowley's bottom lip. For one thrilling second, he let himself imagine he was the sort of man brave enough to simply kiss someone. But he wasn't. Crowley levered himself off in a way that pressed some of him even harder against Aziraphale, which was definitely not at all something that he would think about at a later time, when he was alone. Then he handed Aziraphale the novel. Thank you, Aziraphale said, stiffly. He returned to the other side of the bed and lay down, facing away from Crowley. He could already feel the combination of gravity and the sag in the mattress dragging him towards the center of the bed, closer to Crowley's long legs. He wasn't quite exhausted enough not to care. You know, I wasn't really poking fun at you, Crowley said after a long stretch of silence. Never really read a book like that before. You know, an erotic book. It's not erotica, it's romance. Seemed pretty erotic to me, Crowley said. I got up to the bit where they had sex in the woods. Always seemed a bit risky, sex in the woods. You'd have a really high chance of getting a stick somewhere you didn't want it. And another thing. The sofa bed shifted and creaked as Crowley moved, sliding himself down. What did they use for lube back then? Spit or oil, Aziraphale replied softly. This is just a conversation about lube happening between two acquaintances in a sofa bed. It's nothing, nothing at all. You don't even know if he likes men. No little tub of Vaseline in the saddlebags, then? It wasn't invented until 1872. But did you know, in Japan they made a personal lubricant out of grated yams? He gave a weak chuckle at that. <laughs> I've done quite a bit of research on the topic. Yams, really? With that, he heard Crowley move again, and then the light clicked, plunging the room into darkness. Sounds a bit culinary. Yes, Aziraphale said into the shadows. I suppose it does. After a stretch of silence, Crowley spoke one more time, a low, tired drawl. Look, I'm sorry I read your book. I wasn't trying to upset you. Aziraphale thought it was a mealy-mouthed apology and gave a small sniff. Hm. Well, tomorrow we'll get to the village and get you some money, and then my books and I will be out of your hair for good. Then he shut his eyes and gave in to his fatigue. 
Crowley lay still until Aziraphale's breathing had settled into a slow, heavy rhythm. He hadn't meant to piss him off so much by looking at the book, had thought it'd be a bit of a lark, really, once he'd seen the covers, with all the muscular bodies on them. Aziraphale had reacted as if he'd spat in his face. It wasn't as if the book had been bad, just surprising. Aziraphale seemed as if he should be sitting in some leather armchair at a university somewhere, composing long essays about poetry or dead playwrights, or whatever it was professors did. But no, apparently what he actually did was write about cocksucking, an amazing detail. Crowley found that he liked that. Crowley was starting to like Aziraphale. He liked that he'd walked all that way today without complaining. He liked that he'd sat there and answered rapid-fire questions from Marjorie about his books with incredible graciousness. He liked that he'd had the brains to hide this morning. He liked the way he'd carried his stupid little suitcase all the way. He liked how pink he'd gone when they'd rolled off the bed and landed on the floor. He'd liked the way Aziraphale had felt under him. And that made what he was about to do even shittier. He eased himself out of the sofa bed, which squeaked and rocked treacherously, even as he tried to be careful. Aziraphale stirred slightly and gave a sigh, but didn't wake. He found the man's satchel in the dark, crept into the tiny kitchen, snapped on the light, and opened the bag. He really shouldn't do this, but he was going to anyway. The package was obviously a book, and it was sealed thoroughly in a plastic mailing bag wrapped in tape. Crowley carefully, quietly, opened several drawers in the pokey little brown kitchen until he found a sharp knife, and then, as he'd hoped he would, a clear roll of tape. He carefully sliced the top of the mailing bag open, trying to do so cleanly. He lifted the book out and put it gently on the table. Fuck. He wasn't a true expert in books, not really, even though he'd forged a few. But he knew enough to know what this might be, and roughly how much it was worth. The book was small and bound in an embossed leather cover, patterned with elaborate knotwork. Goatskin, Crowley thought. It was a dark, warm red, burnished by centuries of gentle handling. Even so, he definitely shouldn't be touching it with his bare hands, so he used the tip of the knife to open the cover very gently. The pages were brittle and yellowed with age. Inside, the writing was small, elaborately hand-lettered. There were pictures, too, illuminated pages, vibrant colors, gold leaf, oak gall, and lamp black. Lots of saints and Jesus himself, plenty of angels, too. Crosses and spirals and triskels, all decorated with elaborate intertwining lines. Insular art, the experts called it. Crowley shut the book again, very gently. If he was correct, it was called the Book of Angels, and it had been missing for twenty years after it had been stolen from a private collection in Switzerland. It had been created by monks at an abbey in Scotland sometime around the seventh century. It was beautiful, 
and it could be worth fifteen million pounds on the private market, possibly more. He put it back in the package and sealed it back up with the tape and slid it back into a Xerophil satchel. He thought of a cottage by the ocean and a studio of his own with a big window and lots of natural light. That sort of money would set him up for life. Fuck. Then he put the satchel back where Aziraphale had left it, and lay back down. The other man had somehow managed to roll right into the middle of the lumpy sofa bed, and Crowley was left with the tiniest of strips on the edge of the mattress. He lay down and gave in to gravity, so his back was wedged up against Aziraphale's solid arm. It wasn't comfortable at all, dangling half off the bed. Or perhaps it was the guilt that made him feel so restless. Either way, he knew sleep was going to be elusive, so he lay there and thought of the sea. End of chapter 3 Thank you for reading. Please drop by the archive and let the author know what you thought of their work.